Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with David Bernstein. David is uh, a very active in civil rights. He's the founder of an organization called Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, and he is an author. He's got a new book coming out next month, I believe, called Woke Antisemitism. And this is something I've been speaking about for the last little bit, so I thought I'd have him on. Hi, David. Thank you very much for coming on. Great to be here with you. So yeah, uh, like I said, I mentioned you have a new book coming out next month. Uh, I believe it's October 18th, but I could be wrong about the date. You're right. That's it. Well, I read, okay, first of all, thank you very much for sending me uh, the PDF, um, because I was looking forward to reading it when I heard that it was coming out, and no, fantastic book. Um, If you wouldn't mind starting off with why you thought you wanted to write it, and then what led up to that, and then we can talk about, you know, the anti-Semitism that comes from the woke left. Sure. So, you know, I've actually been on the center left my entire life. So people now tend to think because I'm critical of wokeness that I'm no longer a lefty. And if that's the way they want to define me, fine. But I'm I'm someone who supports, you know, universal health care and immigrant rights and criminal justice reform and church state separation. So I've always identified on the left side of the political aisle. But um, these days, it's becoming harder and harder to do. Not that I'm going to the right necessarily. I'm just trying to find my own path. But uh, because the left is becoming increasingly intolerant. So I grew up um, in, a, in a household that was, um, that was very Jewish. Um, it was an immigrant household. So I, ha- I had this narrative in my family life that America uh, was um, a beautiful and important country that stood in contrast from where my mom was from, which was Baghdad, Iraq, um, where Jews were not, you know, treated always with full rights and citizenship, and they were always living in a state of instability. Um, Not as bad as you'd find in Europe, but certainly, um, certainly, you know, at times, there was profound insecurity. Um, So I so America was a place that I had learned to appreciate. I also grew up with a father who was a civil libertarian. And we believed in civil liberties that that um, that in freedom of speech, and I was brought up with that idea at the forefront. Um, I also um, grew up debating. I had friends of mine who were constantly these are this is what Jewish boys did and still do very often. We we debated every issue under the sun. And sometimes it could be sports. A lot of times it was various political issues. And that created a certain appreciation for for discourse that I had that was that was central to who I was as a Jew. Um, and lastly, I experienced a lot of anti-Semitism growing up from, you know, mostly kids from blue, blue collar families who, you know, probably brought up with a lot of resentment um, about Jews in their household. And, you know, there were a lot of throwing coins at my feet and um, drawing swastikas in my books. So um, with all those forces, I mean, uh, being a civil libertarian, growing up in an immigrant family, um, experiencing anti-Semitism, growing up debating, wokeness really violated almost every single one of those, every single one of those categories. You know, wokeness tried to restrict debate, which drove me crazy. Um, Wokeness um, was ultimately uh, didn't respect our civil liberties tradition. And you see the direction the ACLU has gone in recent years. Um, wokeness seems to be spawning a new variant of anti-Semitism. So in in every single way, wokeness sort of stands in contrast to 
my self sense of self as a Jewish person and as an American. And um, and and from very early age, even you know in my early twenties, I was suspicious of these ideologues who seemed to have all the answers. They were not the dominant voice in that time, but they were a strong voice when I was a college student. And uh, I was always wary of it. And uh, I had gone into the Jewish world as an advocate for Jewish causes, civil rights causes. I did a lot of intergroup relations work. And as I uh, as I got into the thick of things, I started to hear these new these narratives that I, you know, had a vague understanding of that America was a white supremacist country, that America was systemically racist, and so forth. And I thought that that flew in the face of the way I understood America. I thought it was wrong. And I thought it was bad for new immigrant communities who were coming to this country, trying to make it in this country, being told that America was, was this deck was stacked against them. So I started warning even 20 years ago that this ideology, we didn't call it wokeness then, was, was highly problematic. We should be on the lookout. And so when it really, when, when the shit hit the fan after George Floyd, or even before George Floyd, to be honest, um, I was, uh, I was ready to pose the ideology and, and I could talk a little bit about what that was like. Yeah. I mean, some of the things you mentioned, okay. So same thing, like I'm an immigrant, like I moved to Canada when I was six. So I I spent pretty much my whole life here and, you know, when I see our prime minister saying things about how Canada is complicit in genocide and all these other things and like, you know, calling, telling people that, you know, it's a racist country and like, it's not, there's like, again, I think with all this wokeness stuff, with all this woke stuff that's coming in, it's being turned into it. Just to give you an example, we had a, our government launched a program to help black entrepreneurs and there were businesses that were denied funding even though they they met all the criteria like you know they were 95 percent black employees all the management was black the board was all black and they were told they weren't black enough and it just it just because but they because they were more like conservative leaning than left leaning and so it just i've seen that here and it just i've seen that happen and i you know it's the same thing that's the only reason i kind of like I started, I got into it because I started speaking out about Islam and I got called a white supremacist because I criticized the hijab and I'm like, Hey, I'm Brown, you know, and like, where's this coming from? And I just wanted to know where that was coming from. And I started looking and then, then I stumbled onto CRT and intersectionality and it's like, Oh my God, this is what they're using to form policy. And it's, it's just crazy. And like, I want to touch on the, well, I'd like to speak about the anti-Semitism because that's one of the first things I started sure. seeing. And I was saying that I would see that like, or will Jews have whiteness? And I'm like, right. what are you talking about? Well, Jews are white. Do they have white skin? Because they're, you know, Ashkenazi Jews from Europe. Like, okay, but they're not quote unquote white. Because I mean, <clears throat> I think part of the issue was that, you know, Judaism, like someone can be Jewish and that's not only a religion, but it's almost like a an, an ethnicity. And so I think that's where the issue comes in. Right. They don't really understand that aspect of our identity and our self-definition and they insist in defining a certain certain way that's at odds with our own way of seeing ourselves very often no i mean some of the things that i, I noticed first was if it wasn't outright saying stuff it was more of just a silence and condoning what was going on mm. so and then again when this stuff is going through the education like Okay, there's Israel's been criticized from you know like, from its inception, right? And it's 
but when before when I used to hear criticisms of Israel, it wasn't so it wasn't using the the language of post-colonialism. It wasn't using the language of CRT. Now it's like taking an American, you know, I mean CRT started out of the study of American legal jurisprudence, right? And so it's taking that and it's applying to you know Israel. And it's just even the post-colonial thing, I mean, I have you know, I I have some criticisms of Israel, and I'm a criticism of Canada. I have criticisms like, oh, but giving it that colonial idea, it wasn't a colonizing force. It was, I mean, you know, like if you want to talk about the colonialism, okay, fine, yell at the British and the French because it was the British and the French who, you know, created all that. So that there's the colonial aspect of it in my mind. So um, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about that, like what you started noticing it in that language that you know really started alarming you. Yeah. So the first inkling I got of it, well, I'm sure it goes prior to that, but it was the first time I wrote about it, actually, was when I heard the phrase that racism equals prejudice plus power. Now, I always thought that racism was ill will toward a racial group. Um, But this was a different definition of racism that has since seeped into the discourse. And uh, what I realized is that that meant that groups that were perceived as powerful, like Jews, couldn't be victims of racism, and that people of color who were uh, who were bigoted couldn't be perceived as racist, and that that could easily be weaponized in a way that downplays anti-Semitism and makes it impossible for Jews to claim that they've been that they've been experienced racism or anti-Semitism against a minority community. Um, and I think that's what, what one of the things that happened over time. There's there's several other properties that of of sort of woke ideology that enable anti-Semitism. Um, you know, this idea of privilege when you link one's identity to their privilege in society in a very fixed way. I mean, look, I, we're all born with a certain a certain station in life, and we some of us have more or less opportunities in life than other people. So I have no problem with the idea of privilege more generally, but I'm not going to say just because someone was born white or born black, that gives them automatically confers a certain level of privilege on them. And once you do that, once you insist that if you're black, it is a net minus three, or if you're white, it's a net plus three, or if you're cis, it's a net plus two. I think that, um, that, that, that that's, first of all, not very often not true. But it also allows somebody to say, well, if you're Jewish, then you enjoy privilege. Um, or if you're doing well, you've done it on the backs of others, which goes into the concept of equity. Ibram X. Kendi, in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, defines equity as rough parity among various groups. So if a group does not enjoy parity in any institution, that's prima facie evidence of discrimination against that group. But it also means that group that are doing better than the mean on any of, in any institution, economic, education, and so forth, Jews, Asians, Nigerians even, are doing so on the backs of the people who are experiencing the racism. And, um, and I think that's also weaponized. A third feature of this is, is really the downplaying of anti-Semitism. You hear very often these days people saying, do not decenter blackness or decenter anti-blackness. 
Um, so if a Jewish person raises in the context of a diversity, equity, inclusion session, well, I'm Jewish and I also experienced a lot of anti-Semitism or my parents or my grandparents were victims of the Holocaust, uh, they can be easily accused and have been accused of decentering Blackness or anti-Blackness. Um, recently, there was this case of Nicole Levitt. Um, she's somebody that I know real well. Um, she worked at a, she works at a nonprofit in Philadelphia uh, defending women who are abused and victims of domestic violence. And when Nic when Nicole raised in the context of her DEI training at work, the problem of anti-Semitism, she was actually censured for it, for, for taking the spotlight off of anti-Black racism. I think that that's, in, and we're seeing many examples of that in the current discourse. So I think that's all problematic. Um, I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg here. Like this, it, as wokeness sets in, becomes the dominant discourse in institutions over time, I think people will become much more likely to sort of look at the world in this binary of oppressed versus oppressor. And Jews, and by extension, Israel, will be viewed as the oppressor class, and others will be viewed as the oppressed class. And I think that should be problematic for us. And too many Jews, unfortunately, have gone along with this and don't actually see the dangers. Yeah, when you said too many people, like, you know, too many Jewish people have gone along with it and don't see the dangers, I, it's, I think a lot of people just go along with it because it sounds good. Like, right. anti-racism sounds good. You know, like, okay, we're going to fight homophobia. It's, you know, I, I keep going back to Jonathan Roach's book, Kindly Inquisitors, and what he called the humanitarian threat. You know, that this is the humanitarian threat, right? Like, you're, because I mean, okay, even in, uh, like, so Canada, the number one hate crime, if you look at the police statistics, is always anti-Semitism. Right. When Trudeau, uh, so in 2019, when he won the election the second time, he converted the Ministry of Multiculturalism to call it the Ministry of Diversity, Inclusion, and Youth. And their mandate, the mandate letter that he sent out to them was they were supposed to look at the government to see how the government was not being, was being anti-racist. And it was, the, their focus was on anti-Black racism. And I'm like, again, I'm not seeing, like, if you look down the list, I think it was number four races against against black people in Canada. It was statistics, right. Yeah. And I, like I said, I get anti-Semitism was number one. Uh Islamophobia was, I think, and I hate the term Islamophobia, but that's what they used was I think was at number five. But I mean in 2015 when he got elected and so he got elected in 2015. So in 2016 he put out a motion and it was motion M103 and it was basically it was a motion against Islamophobia. I mean they they talked all about Islam. And they put in a couple of lines of, you know, protecting all religions, but it was, you saw that it was geared towards protecting people from, and I'm not saying that, you know, I don't want my family, you know, I'm from a Muslim background. I don't want my family harassed or anything like that. But it's again, like if the number one hate crime in the country is anti-Semitism, why are you focusing? Why are you not putting any money towards that? And I mean, like one perfect example of this was, so in 2021, when there was the protests against Israel again because of the you know back and forth with Gaza. But at this point now, the you know, Jewish people were being chased in the streets. Like it happened in Toronto, it happened in Montreal, in my neighborhood, there was uh and again, I, I was told that this might have been false, but I live in a neighborhood that has large Hasidic and Orthodox communities mm -hmm. uh, around where I am. But and there was a, a warning put out that apparently there were people going around scoping out houses with mezuzahs. But when all this was happening in Canada and there were videos of Jewish people being chased by Palestinians or Palestinian supporters or, you know, people were pro-Palestinian uh, protests, the first words out of Trudeau's mouth 
like, you know, our prime minister was, oh, be careful not to like fall into Islamophobia. And right. you'd mentioned Nicole, I'd, I'd just spoken with her recently. And I mentioned like in, I think it was 2019 or 2020 that uh, in Hanukkah, when there was all those attacks on the synagogues and their attacks on Jewish people, like the worst one was in Muncie. Right. Uh, and right after that happened, the local newspapers put out articles saying, you know, please don't become over overcome with whiteness. And it's like, okay, but Jewish people were killed by a black man. I think you should be able to say that. <laughs> right. You know, there were, there were something like I heard recently 400 attacks against Hasidic Jews last year in that, in the various Hasidic areas of New York, that's 400. That's more than one a day to give you a sense of how pervasive it was. And yet you barely hear anybody talking about that as a threat. And it's very hard to talk about it. Um, so I think that, you know, that's right. That it, um, And it, so anti-Semitism in, in a way is an inconvenient reality for woke progressive ideology because it wants to look at the world in very stark terms. It wants to be able to say there are oppressors and oppressed. And here you have Jews who have done well financially very often, on average at least, above the mean and educationally, also experiencing prejudice and anti-Semitism. And it sort of it sort of challenges the very model that they're putting out there in the world. And so it's it's a lot easier to try to downplay that than have to actually contend with the more complex reality that ex actually exists. So, um, so you know, I, I went, I, I thought about this a lot. It was really the Gaza conflict that you just mentioned. It was in May 2021 that made a lot of American Jews realize that things had changed and we, we couldn't really figure it out. I had been following conflicts, previous conflicts between Israel and Hamas and Gaza. I, you know, there was 2018, there was 2014, I think there was 2009, there was 2008. And they would all sort of follow this trajectory. Like in the beginning of the conflict, you know, the major news outlets and the, and the State Department and everybody else would give Israel some leeway to, to do what it thought they had to do. And within a few days, when the casualties started to mount, as they inevitably would, there would be an outcry against Israel, and Israel would have to sort of pull back perhaps earlier than it was ready to, to finish the, the job that it thought it had to do. And um, and that was what you would feel. But in May 2021, maybe with the with social media the way it was, the, the and Twitter, Israel was being roundly slammed. And in fact, in some ways, the, the casualties were lower than in previous rounds of conflict. And Yet they were being they were being you know called out for war crimes and the like, um, and you know again that's not to say that Israel is beyond reproach. I mean there probably there might be things that that any Israeli government or any Israeli soldier or whatever uh, might have done that deserve criticism. But but this was clearly different, and they were being evaluated differently. And my only explanation for that was this sort of spread of woke ideology, um, and I and I worry I worry that that. What we're doing in schools around the United States, and I suspect in Canada as well, I'm following some of what's going on in Canada, is we're installing a new software in people's heads, and kids' heads. This software is this sort of oppressed versus oppressor binary. My son's public school system is going through an anti-racist audit that is going to teach kids in social studies to recognize and resist systems of oppression. Now, if you think about that, like, Okay, there are systems of oppression. I'm not denying that there are systems of oppression. They've, we've seen them all over the world, including in the United States. 
But to think that that's your sort of default setting and that you're going to look for that everywhere, it's going to mean that people who do well in American society are part of the oppressor class and everybody else is part of the oppressed. And it's and it's it, it sort of negates critical thinking. It tries to end the conversation. It's what some people call epistemic closure. It closes the conversation from critical discourse. And it and it makes it impossible for people to say, well, I don't think that's correct, that that's an example of oppression. And yeah, so I, I mean, think that that's going to spark a new round of anti-Semitism in the long run as well. No, that, I mean, how, okay. The, the way I look at it, too, is all this talk of whiteness and how Jews have taken on whiteness. I mean, even during the uh, George Floyd riots, uh, George Floyd riots, the, there was, I think in LA, a few synagogues had gotten attacked and vandalized and Nicole Hannah Jones, oh, capitalism is whiteness and it's just property. And, you know, right. and like you'd mentioned the attacks on Hasidic Jews right after the trio life shooting. So I think a week or two after it, the New York times had put out an, um, an op-ed or an article, I can't remember, but it was talking about, so what did they said in the previous two years from when that article had written, I'd been written something like 40 of the 42 anti-Semitic attacks they had on record were, perp were perpetrated by left-wing people, but they went underreported because they didn't fit the narrative of white supremacists attacking Jews. Okay. So you had 42 attacks in, you know, it's, it's, it's so it's like one a month, right? And it's, it's a small community. I, you know, like Jews aren't, a large majority, you know, a large minority in any community that they're in. I mean, that's there's what what 15 million worldwide, anyways. And it's just, you know, so when you see those kind of attacks, I mean, again, it, it, I'll just use Canada example. So there was three thousand Indigenous women killed over the period of about thirty years. Now these were, you know, and Canada, that's when Justin Trudeau called Canada a genocidal country, and I'm like, okay. 3,000 people killed is a lot, but 3,000 over 30 years, I don't count, consider that a genocide. I mean, you know, let's, let's use the terms correctly here. But, and there was such a big stink about it. When the report finally came out, and it was something, I mean, I get the numbers wrong, but it was like 85% or 95% committed by Indigenous men. So he was blaming this on, I mean, and a lot of these women were, you know, sex workers and things like that. They were, you know, there's a lot of alcohol abuse in first nations in Canada. And, you know, I used to live in Inuit communities. I saw a lot of it. Um, but just to like link that off to white supremacy. And it's, I, I find the same thing is happening with anti-Semitism and same thing towards like attacks on Asians. You know, if it, the attacker doesn't fit the narrative, they're going to find some way around it. I, I think it was the Washington post recently too, just put out an article about how you shouldn't focus on the fact that all these people attacking Asians are black. And it's like, I thought I like all that kind of stuff. I thought to, in my mind, it's like, okay, we're putting up a flag here saying these people are no longer protected. Do what you want. Right. And so then other people get emboldened. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, I think that's right. You know, it is a challenging one about, um, about how much to emphasize the blackness of the perpetrators. I, I've, I'm writing an article about this now. And, you know, I think it's very important that we're able to talk about, different cultures, right? That cultures can be a determinative, determinative of disparity and of other aspects in um, crime and the like. But at the same time, I recognize that black culture or Jewish culture or Arab culture is not the same everywhere. So for example, when, um, you know, while there've been all these black on Asian 
violence in New York or black unorthodox Jewish violence in New York. I live in the county next to Prince George's, I live in the county next to Prince George's County, Maryland. It is about 60 some percent black. And as far as I know, there hasn't been any black on Asian crime, even though there's a strong Asian community. So it's not just a feature of all black culture. It's a, it's, it's a feature of a subset of black culture in New York City where people live in very close proximity to each other. And I, so I want to be able to be precise about that because I want to be able to give a culture critique in a thoughtful way that's heard and not be accused of racism. And so, um, and, and also not be racist in it and not be overly broad in that culture of critique. So I think it is a complicated task. Like I wanna be careful about how I talk about things like that, but without denying the fact that it clearly emerges out of very specific cultural context. It's not happening from, um, it's not happening from, you know, Vietnamese people, you know, aren't, aren't attacking Orthodox Jews on the street. So, mm -hmm. so how to have that conversation in the most thoughtful, precise way as possible, I think is the key to it. Yeah, and I mean also, that's why I don't like the the conversations about you know like broad generalizations. You know, uh, just take you know stereotypes like Asians are good at math. You know, like, yeah, you know, but not you know. I, I I have a lot of friends you know who are South Asian who right. can barely add up. Math. Yeah, yeah. Right. It, but it's just so yeah. The, like, talking broad generalizations is wrong, but I think in certain okay. So you're talking about where you live in Maryland. But if this is going on in New York City, then I think it, you know, it behooves a place like the New York Times to actually look into this instead Absolutely. of instead of like you mentioned, Nicole, like I said, I, I've spoken to her. And this is like I said, this is my biggest thing. It's my one biggest issue with all this woke stuff. There is a problem of, you know, of anti-Semitism in New York City coming from certain black communities. OK, so let's. Mm -hmm. And it's if, but if you can't talk about that because of, you know, power plus privilege or Jews or have whiteness and all this stuff, you're not going to solve that issue. So if you're right. wasting your time talking about all this other stuff, like, it, you know, I, I'll give an example from Canada again. I, I'm sure you've heard about it. So we had our government, uh, the, the, the ministry of heritage, I think, um, hired this guy to give anti-racism training to our public broadcaster. Now, this guy's a Canadian citizen who's been living in Lebanon for the last three years and who's going to do it all online anyways. But, I mean, some of the most horrific anti-Semitic stuff coming out and the minister of, you know, the minister responsible for that ministry was informed about it in July. He didn't do anything until it broke recently. Right. And over the last six years, the government's given him about $600,000 to do these kind of things. And this is, and it's, and now they're looking at it. It's like, oh, well, we, we canceled the funding. Everyone's like, see, the problem solved. It's like, no, the anti-racism this guy's preaching is the anti-racism that the Canadian government is preaching. Why don't we look at what they're preaching and why it would allow someone like that into it, right? Right. And it's, it's like, what are the tenets of this that are causing it? It's, but it, it, it's like an easy fix. You know, it is, it is a quick, quick fix. You know, it, it's, it's a bullshit version of, of anti-racism. I mean, that's, I don't, I don't even, I, I don't even want to call it anti-racism because it is pure bigotry. It is pure hatred. I mean, Kendi says it straight out. Like, you know, 
cure for past discrimination is pre- present discrimination. Cure for present discrimination is future discrimination. So, I mean, it's you're never going to solve racism if you work it that way. Right. Yeah, in many ways, it's just a deeply flawed social model, right, that people are lifting up as some cure-all to our what ails our society. And I think it's it actually just exacerbates those tensions. It, identitarianism on the le- left, you know, generates identitarianism on the right. And um, and as you said, when you when you misdiagnose a problem, when you call something a function of systemic racism, when it may have a either multiple causes, as is often the case, or b maybe entirely something other than racism, then you're not going to solve that problem. You know, it's very possible, for example, that if you look at let's say an inner city black community that was once you know, a product of red, once a victim of redlining, right? Um, You know, and you can, and, and also of Jim Crow and everything else. And you can say, well, it's still poor today. And so therefore systemic racism is at work. I, 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 I think that that's potentially very problematic. First of all, I I don't know. I want to look at it very carefully and try to analyze what's going on in that community. But B, even if, it was once completely a function of systemic racism. In other words, the systemic racism was responsible for creating those conditions. Once the systemic racism is gone and it doesn't fix the situation, you have to start to say, okay, what's left from that? What are the cultural problems that might have emerged from systemic racism that are still causing problems? What about the father, the lack of fathers that are staying in their families? How do we deal with that? And if you just want to blame everything on systemic racism, you may never address the root cause of those problems today, what's left from systemic racism, but isn't systemic racism. And I, and I think that, you know, and some people will dismiss these issues as sort of like trivial, like we should be dealing with something else. We should be dealing with the extremism on the right. And I would argue that actually issues of disparity of what causes it and how to fix it, these are central to who we are. Um, and they're central to how we think of ourselves in this day and age. You know, this narrative that America or Canada are pervasively racist nations spills into how we do our foreign policy. It spills into how we, what social policy we adopt. Um, it, it spills into how immigrants are acculturated in our countries when they come to our shores and what they think about the country that they're in and what opportunities that they have and whether or not they adopt a locus of control so that they're responsible for their own lives. It, it really affects a lot of the way we function in society. And I think it's a really important conversation to have, even if it's not the only conversation, because there are, in fact, big problems on the right, at least in America as well. Okay, when I got back from overseas, one of my biggest things was I started seeing all this thing happen. I started looking it around, and I'm like, what's going on? And I was like, you know, I'm the frog thrown into the boiling water that's freaking out and everyone's just simmering along thinking it's all fine. And like one of my first things was you're going to get overcorrections. You're going to get overcorrections in the other direction. Yes. And okay. I thought maybe Trump was the overcorrection. I thought maybe Charlottesville was the overcorrection, but like at this point, I don't have a lot of sympathy for some of the, like, okay. What you said, you were always center left. Same here. Like I always been center left up until Trudeau took over the Liberal Party, I've always voted for the Liberal Party in Canada. You know, I was, I like, you know, yeah, same-sex marriage, fine. You know, abortion, uh, abortion, I, I kind of, I think, you know, the first trimester is sort of like where you should have the cutoff, but. Me too. That's, that's something you can debate, but, you know, I, I think it should be given. And, you know, like, there's a lot, like, I'm, 
I'm for strong social nets. I'm for a lot of these things, right? But I don't agree with the way they're the way some of this stuff is being done. But so, like when I look at the stuff on the right, and you know, again, you gutted all your institutions. Like you mentioned, the ACLU. The ACLU is not even a shadow of what it used to be. Right. And you know, media is completely lost to you. And it doesn't mean just because I'm you know dis like talking bad about New York Times and Washington Post doesn't mean that I agree with Breitbart and Fox News. It's right. just that is an issue that was there before, and you had a you had a buttress against all that. But now the institutions that protected you have been overtaken. So right. when you are start complaining about the anti CRT bills in places like Texas, okay, but you know what? You don't have a defense against that anymore. Like you know. I'm thankful that the fire has taken on uh, a more, you know, instead of just focus on education, they're doing it more socially and more culturally. Like they're going mm-hmm. across the whole they're spectrum. They're becoming the new ACLU. Yeah. The you know, way it and, was. Yeah. And, and places like fair and counterweight, but these, you know, they're just starting. Right. So it's not, it's not like fairs be only been around for a couple of years. Counterweight, same thing. I'm glad these things are happening, but you've lost a lot. Like when the CDC comes out with, with a recommendation that you should give vaccination by race. Right. And then everyone's like, oh, well, they got rid of that recommendation two days later. So everything's fine. It's like, no, what caused that? <laughs> like, you know, that recommendation is just the tip. Like just because they got rid of it, you haven't got rid of what caused that recommendation. Right. Which is this fallacy that all disparities are a function of race. When a lot of times <laughs> if you just did the study, you'd actually see in controlled for economics, you'd see that it was, it was class and income driven. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I know. And, you know, another interesting um, problem with with all this and with anti-Semitism in particular is that when people are talking about anti-Semitism on the right, they're talking about causes. So if you talk about anti-Semitism, right, you'll talk about outright ideology. You'll talk about the great replacement theory and you'll and you'll have a sense of why these um, why this anti-Semitism came. What's the ideological antecedent? And when you talk about anti-Semitism in the Muslim world, you'll talk about Islamism and Muslim Brotherhood and jihadism and the like. And you'll say, okay, in that context, you can understand why anti-Semitism emerged from fertile ground. But when you talk about anti-Semitism on the left, uh, and this is very often Jews I'm talking about, um, we'll talk about it as a symptom as if there's no cause, as if it was just sort of came down from outer space and landed here with no apparent reason. Um, Jonathan Greenblatt, who's the head of the Anti-Defamation League, who has recently come under some criticism for the wokeness in their own curriculum, um, he likes to equate anti-Semitism on the right with a hurricane and anti-Semitism on the left with climate change. And I think that's a perfectly good analogy. I agree with that analogy. But he doesn't talk about the CO2 emissions that created the climate change. And those CO2 emissions are woke ideology. Those CO2, um, those CO2 emissions are the oppression oppressed binary. Those CO2 emissions are a fixed sense of, of privilege and linking identity to privilege. Those CO2 emissions are the um, equity formula where the only people who are, um, are anybody at the top of the uh, socially or economically is oppressing other people. Those are the CO2 emissions and we're not talking about them. And my goal in writing this book was for people to connect the dots between the ascendancy of woke ideology and the multifold increase in anti-Semitism on the left. Yeah. And I mean, I think people also don't realize because 
this is a function of education and this is a you know everyone's taught about the nazis everyone's taught about fascism you're not really taught about communism and the horrible things it did and i i'd spoken with uh, isabella uh yes and she you know she talked about the soviet union and she talked about you know going up there and the anti-semitism that was coming out of the soviet state and we're not taught about that so in north america or you know quote unquote the west in general i think we're not we're all we've all we've always been taught that anti-Semitism is a right-wing thing, and not that it comes from the left. And I, I think that's one of the issues as well. People aren't aware that you know there is this stuff latent in the way in the left as well. It's not, and you know, it's in the fringes. It's in the extremes, and unfortunately, on the left, that fringe is becoming more and more mainstream because you're getting it from everywhere. Whereas, I mean, you know, you're not getting Richard Spencer. You know, he doesn't have, there's not columns in the New York Times talking about the ideology of Richard Spencer right there, unless you're denigrating it. Right. You know, but you are lauding equity and diversity and intersectionality right. and all this other stuff, which then does lead to, you know, looking at who's oppressed and who's the oppressor. And sorry, just to ramble one a little, little bit longer. It's, I keep bringing up the school in New York City, which was, uh, the the Fieldstone Academy. So in 2015, they had all their kids. So it was K through eight, and they had kids from grade three on. Divide themselves into racial groups, and they talked about what was good about their races, and they told all the white kids that you were evil, and it's because of you that all this all these people were oppressed. And within a matter of a couple of months, every well, every group in that school started spouting out, you know, ethno nationalist language and so the white kids started sounding like kkk you know the black kids started sounding like really extreme black panthers like you know you can go down the list and they because all all these kids did was they went online like what's good about my race what's bad about this race right and they just because they were right. taught to look at everything through that lens i mean you've got beavis and Butthead did a spoof on that i don't know if you saw that the cartoon no? beavis and butthead they <laughs> these two you know idiot yeah. uh, kids and they um they heard a lecture at their school about white privilege and one of them looked at the other is like we got white privilege let's go and they went and they stole the police car <laughs> and they they ran a rampage we got white privilege we're allowed to do this you know so there is a little and i know it was a spoof but you know it, it there's a, some truth to that like what you're doing I mean, I think you're doing two things with this idea of white privilege. One is for a lot of poor white folks in areas that have been, you know, opioid um, saturated and with all the problems, dysfunctions, and you're telling them that they enjoy privilege because of their whiteness, you're going to get resentment and anger. And it's coming from elites, so it's directed at elites. So it's going to be, the resentment and anger is going to be expressed at elites. And the other is a certain percentage of people say, okay, well, if we have that, we're not going to give it up. Um, and um, and so I think it's it's absolutely the wrong way to talk about these issues. You know, um, you know, I'm all for trying to find ways of reducing disparities in society, but I want to talk about them openly and honestly. And I want to I want there to be a spirit of sort of social experimentation and policy experimentation. Let's try market-based solutions. Let's try government funding-based solutions. I mean, let's be committed to the project of creating, um, you know, greater equality. If there, are two, if there are very few black scientists, let's do the best we can of introducing young black kids to STEM while we can and invest in it, invest in it in a serious way. I'm all for that. But uh, I, to me, that's the right social model. We've we've sort of 
slouched into the wrong social model through wokeness. And I think it's it's much more dangerous than a lot of the people who poo-poo it realize, who think it's a moral panic realize. I don't think my I don't think the Liberal Party is 100% woke. I think Justin Trudeau yeah, sure. is. I think some of the key members are. Um, but I mean, don't people like you, you talked earlier about you know anti-Semitism for the right and the resentment, you know, working class blue-collar resentment towards Jewish people because they're more successful. But what's coming on in the woke is it, it, like a mirror image of that. Oh, you've got whiteness. Oh, you've got privilege. It's the same argument. It's instead of you know coming from a blue-collar person who might use rougher language. This is couched in academic lingo and jargon. So yeah. it sounds better. You know, and it, it sounds better. There's a great example of that. Uh, I think it was 2016 at Stanford. There was a Stanford student senator who said that he agreed that he didn't think it was anti-Semitic to say that Jews controlled the media, blah, blah, blah. And he was being called on the carpet for his insensitive and anti-Semitic remarks. And there was a debate. And several of the students of the debate were talking about the intersection of white privilege and Jewish privilege. And yet that somehow made it beneath the radar. In other words, you couldn't use the traditional, very explicit anti-Semitic trope. That'll get you in trouble. But you talk about the intersection of white privilege and Jewish privilege. Well, you can get away with that. All right. And I think that's one of the dangers here is that, that, you know, wokeness has this vocabulary that that's couches, um, some very troubling and hateful concepts in a shroud of social justice. And I think um, people are not alert to it. They don't understand it. And they end up buying into it. It's sort of smuggled in. We, we have a poll recently that we did of 1,600 likely voters. And we asked them, um, we asked them, do you believe, yes or no, what, what are you more likely to believe, that America is a structurally racist country, white supremacist country, and that white adjacent groups like Jews and Asians are taking advantage of it, and we need equity to reverse that? And a lot of people, especially on the progressive side of the aisle, supported it. I mean, it was really quite stunning. It was like, you know, it was eight to one or nine to one in support of that, of that basic statement. Now, some people might point out, and they have pointed out, and will point out, well, you smuggled in that idea of Jews and Asians in there, is didn't you? Like you didn't, you could have just asked that question separately. But our point is, but that's exactly what's happening in the field. That's exactly how it's being brought in. People are able to get away with saying Jews and Asians are white adjacent, and no one actually cares. And that's why it's a problem. Um, and so, you know, I think um, I think woke ideology is 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 very cleverly written in a way to as a mind virus to elude all of our normal immune system, and has done very been very effective. That's why a lot of Jews buy into it, and why Jews probably bought into certain communist ideas going back, you know. 50, 60 years ago, even after Stalin had killed millions of people, there were still Jews that were susceptible to communist ideas because those ideas were still couched into a social justice language that resonated with the Jewish soul. And we're seeing that today again. And I think we've got to help people realize and decode what this language is really all about. Yeah. Okay. On the Asian side of things. So there's a guy that Okay, so right during COVID, so this is July of 2020, there was an online conference in Toronto. One of the organizers was uh, a senior reporter at the Toronto Star, 
And another one of the organizers, he's uh, on the board of directors of like the largest school board in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And the conference was brown complicity and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And it was about stuff like that. Like, okay, a uh, brown person getting a job allows the white people to say, see, we're not racist, but the job's not going to a black person. So, say, you know, it, it, like all this nonsense. But it, it, it's becoming, you know, like I said, it, it's becoming accept. Oh, well, that's just, you know, Asian privilege or something. I've seen like yellow privilege, uh, you know, I see, like it, it's, it's just this horrendous stuff. And it's like you are allowing people to be racist. Yeah. And again, going back to the overcorrection thing, like especially now, the economy's tanking, it's not doing well. If you're focusing people on differences and you're doing it by race, you're going to start looking for scapegoats of why I'm not doing good. And if you're told, well, Asians are do really well in school and they've got so much money and, you know, they earn more than white Americans, blah, 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 blah. You say the same thing about Jewish people. Well, there's your scapegoats. You know, those are the people that are going to get attacked first. And I mean, historically, it's been Jews who get attacked first when economy goes sour and people are looking for scapegoats and you, and then when you funnel this stuff into the, into the culture where people are automatically trying to, well, where are you on the status level? And, you know, are you more oppressed or oppressor? And they start doing this little calculus in their head. Yeah. Jewish people, Asians, you know, I, I, maybe Nigerians might be left out a little bit because you know, they're, they're skin color, but you're going to get these people attacked. And, in majority of white countries, I don't want to see a white racial reckoning because I think Psych Today did a, a study on that where white kids are starting to show more affinity for you know their skin color, and right. I, I we've seen where that goes. You know, I mean, right, and it's almost cultivated. I mean, if you go back into the earliest discussions of diversity was to get the white people to realize that they were themselves in ethnicity you know whiteness well you're it's invisible to you because you're the dominant culture so we want you to realize that you're white and theoretically from that if you recognize that you're white you'll see that you are actually oppressing other people even if you don't mean to but the problem is, is it actually just creates it creates a backlash because people don't like to be told what to think so they're resentful. They're resentful be, be, for being called privilege. And it also sort of cultivates a racial consciousness that we don't want. I don't want white people to be racially conscious. I don't want white people to think that they're being, um, th that they're on the ropes in society. Um, and so, and, and it's almost as if the, um, the woke forces are trying to create a, 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 a more, vicious race war than we already have, that they're trying to actually create a kind of racial consciousness on white people that will only exacerbate racial tensions. So I, I think that's one of the of many reasons why we shouldn't cultivate this sort of race essentialism in American society. It will actually cause more racism from whites to blacks, not less. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, like, like the whole idea of just, I, I, I keep, there's a, there's a couple experiments that they've done where, you know, they just divided people up and they said, okay, you like chocolate ice cream. You like vanilla ice cream. And right away, the in-group, out-group thing started happening. You know, and it's, it's something innocuous like ice cream. So when you throw race into there and then when people's, you know, livelihoods are being threatened or things are getting more expensive and, you know, it's harder and harder to make ends meet every month, it's, you're going to look for someone. And when you throw that hatred in and like, 
know, it's to, to me, it's scary. Like, I, but I just, one thing I want to ask you about your book, like, and it's not a criticism or anything. I'm just curious. Are you sure. worried that there might be a backlash against Jewish people in a certain way? Because I mean, you do talk about Jewish organizations in there that have taken on, on this woke stuff and what they're talking about. So do you think that there's going to be a backlash saying, ah, oh, see, it's the Jews that are pushing this? Because like, yeah, that's another trope. It is. So I posted announcements of my book on several anti-woke, anti-CRT Facebook groups. And in every single case, there was one or more comments. Stop whining, you Jews. You're the ones who did wokeness in the first place. You're the ones that brought this on. So stop complaining now that it hits you. And, you know, of course, that's ridiculous. I mean, of course, there are, of course, there's always been Jews involved in wokeness. There's Jews involved in communism and there's Jews involved in capitalism. Any institution um, will have on the, you know, on the vanguard is likely to have Jews in, in it, whether it's on the right, left or center. Um, but um, but it, it can be. Um, and I, I think if one, whenever a minority community needs to contend with an internal reality, it almost has to take that risk and air its dirty laundry in a way, even if it makes it more susceptible to people who don't wish it well. Because you can't, you can't like, look, if there are Black leaders who say, we're going to have to deal with some of the cultural dysfunction in our own community around, you know, kids making fun of other kids for being too white because they do well in school and things like that. And they deal with that and they talk about that. It's going to get some white people who are then going to say, look at how, look, look and they're going to, they're going to engage in a racist trope. So that's, that's the trade-off that we make when we reflect about our own problems, our own internal realities. But it's, to me, all said and done, I'd rather figure out among ourselves what's going on here and for more Jews to recognize that this ideology can harm Jews in a very serious way and that we should get back to a sort of the liberal tradition. Jews do best in liberal societies and open societies where people can discuss issues and disagree with each other. And we're losing that. And that itself is going to be the biggest cause of anti-Semitism. Yeah. I mean, you'd mentioned the debating aspect. I mean, uh, I had a friend of mine uh, explain this to me, like that whole debating aspect in Judaism he, he talked about how Abraham was going back and forth with God before Sodom and Gomorrah got destroyed. And he said, you see, like, this is a tradition that goes back to, you know, to Abraham. And we're taught to debate. We're taught to, to argue out, which you know, I'm an atheist and I've criticized religion. I criticize Islam a lot. And like that tradition in Judaism, okay, there are debates in Islam, but it's more about like my friend Faisal uh, Al-Muttar, he, he jokes about it. It's like the debates are, should you throw gays off the 12th floor or the 10th floor? You know, it's like, it's like that. That's the kind of debating they have. But like, like that whole idea of debate, like the way this stuff curtails debate, it's, okay, I don't want to, like, I, I don't want to, you know, I, 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 I remember in Seinfeld, he used to joke like in, the, in a show, like he joked about his uncle uh, Leo, who would say if the soup was cold, uh, the restaurant's anti-Semitic. Like I don't want right. to take it, take no, it like right. that. It doesn't yeah. have to be viewed as that. It just has a very bad impact on Jews who love to debate, like me. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a whole article about this about how that was sort of some key aspect of my identity 
was sort of being challenged because I did like to debate and I believed I learned from debating and I taught my kids to debate around the Shabbat table. By the way, I myself am not a strong believer. I'm probably on the agnostic spectrum somewhere. And yet the idea of machloket l'shem shamayim, arguments for the sake of heaven, which is central to the Jewish tradition and the idea that the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai, who are on opposite sides of Jewish law, that they would debate issues and that um, God ultimately sided with the house of Hillel because the house of Hillel didn't only cite its own rulings and its ordinances, but also those of the house of Shammai. Its own, they, they, they cited, they still manned their opponent's arguments when they made their arguments. And so the so uh, so the, the the ruling of God was uh, both these and both those, them and those are the words of the living God. But the law is with the house of Hillel because Hillel cited the arguments of Shammai. Like that's central. That's such an important idea. And, and whether I believe, of course, whether it came from the word of God or not, I mean, it's not even central. It's a it, it's sort of a a myth that we tell ourselves to teach ourselves a lesson about how we should engage each other. And um, and I want that myth to be out there. I'm not going to pretend that it, it's a it was um, it's historically true, but that myth it serves an incredible function. You know, I spent some time in a yeshiva in Israel in Jerusalem, and I was in the Beit Midrash studying Talmud in the Aramaic, trying to learn the Aramaic, so I could have the conversations about what was happening in these. You know, if one man's ox gores another man's calf, who's responsible? And the deep philosophical debates over it. And I'm sitting there, I'm this quiet, you know, 22-year-old kid at the time with my Talmud tutor. And the guy next to me erupts and he said, he starts screaming at the other guy. He's exempt. He's exempt. And um, I thought it was, the guy was crazy. Like we had witnessed some, you know, really inappropriate eruption in this, what should have been like a library. And it turns out five minutes later, another guy erupted. And that was the culture of the Beit Midrash. And um, and yet now, if one debates, you know, I, I one of my favorite examples of this is I posted in a Jewish educator site that I thought it was a mistake for Jewish schools to embrace DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion curricula. And all these teachers started calling me a racist. And I, we were sort of going back and forth. And to me, I'm just debating. You know, I think they're wrong. And I'm a little scared that they're that there's not more defense of my position or there aren't other people weighing in. But one rabbi, very prominent rabbi, written multiple books, chimes into the discussion and she says, and we start, she starts criticizing me and everybody's sort of applauding her. And then she says, I don't owe you my labor. And I thought that what a profoundly un-Jewish thing to say. She just, because her labor was debating me and she didn't owe me her labor. And I think that that's the sensibility we're up against now is that um, is that, you know, is that somehow, you know, the debate is over. We figured it all out. That's not good for the Jewish people. It's yeah, I mean, not good I, for society. It's the identity politics thing. They've made the identity so central. And they said, this is your identity and it's central to who you are. So any questioning is a questioning that identity. And again, I see that with Islam a lot, where if you question any of the tenets of the faith, it's like you're attacking Muslims. Like, no, I'm talking attacking the ideas in this book. You know, or in the Hadith or in the life of Muhammad or whatever. I'm, I'm attacking these ideas, but they take it as an attack on themselves. And it's just the same thing. Like if you question whether someone can be trans, it's oh, it's an attack on the trans identity. You know, it's, it's, it's identity is so wrapped up in this stuff. Like 
I mean, I think that goes back to Crenshaw's paper uh, mapping the margins. Where in the last little bit of it, it says we have to get away from the liberal ethic and we need to form a politics based on identity. And it's, I mean, again, we've seen where identity based politics leads to, and it's just, it's not not good, good. <laughs> not good at all. No, and it, you know, and it, and it's a, it's a challenge to liberalism itself. And you know, whenever you know, the idea that we should be able to work out these differences in in conversation with each other, and why it ain't perfect, and it doesn't solve all the problems compared to everywhere else in the world, it's the best that there is. I think part of what we're dealing with here is a kind of utopianism that promises that if we just um, you know, settle all the past scores and we, we, we give people who have been historically deprived you know, their just reward, their, their, their slice of the pie, we'll have solved all these problems. But it's not the way the, the universe has been set up. And, um, and I think um, it's not the right way of living the most um, prosperous free society. We're not going to end up there. Um, and so, um, yes, we, we, we don't have all the answers, us liberals, people who believe in, in discussion, believe in conversation, believe in argumentation. We don't have all the answers and we won't solve every problem, but it sure beats all the other alternatives. Yeah, I mean, it's like, again, going back to Jonathan Rauch's book, I mean, with the way he says it, you know, like, the truth and reality will have always have the last word, right? I mean, it's, it's like, right. no, there's no one authority. Like, you know, at the start of the 20th century or just before the end of the 19th century, oh, science is done. We don't need any more new science. It's all done. And then like, you know, 15, 20 years later, Einstein comes out with relativity and it changes right. everything, right? It just, no, I mean, it's to think that we've reached, a, you know, we've reached the height of this is civilization, blah, 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 and we don't need any more. No, it's, that's the whole point. I mean, I think that's one of the things about the, you know, the, the, the declaration of independence, it's like a forming a more perfect union. It's not saying forming a perfect union. It's always a more perfect. It's always looking to better itself. It's always looking to self-correct and, and, and fix the issues. And I, I think that's, I think we should, I think we need to get back to like a value, the individual, but, the individual, like, as, I mean, you have to have some sort of form of collectivism. You're, you're in a society. You can't just only deal with the individual. But I think sure. if you give, if the individual is freer, I believe the society ends up being freer. And, you know, I think another one of the issues is you've gotten rid of civics and things like that. So people talk about their rights, but they don't talk about their responsibilities. I think you should, you know, there are responsibilities of being a citizen. And it, it shouldn't be by force of law. But, like, you know, if you're walking down the street and you see, yeah, this is a bad example for me because I'm a smoker, but you know, if you see like packs of cigarettes or whatever, pick them up, throw them in the garbage. You know, if there's, if you're walking down the street, there's a tree branch somewhere or whatever, if you can move it out of the way, move it out of the way. Like those, I think should be your responsibilities as a citizen. And, you know, there's, there are a few other things as well. I, right. I think we and there, and there are people who are arguing that, that liberalism is responsible for that lack of civic spirit and responsibility that we've lost something because liberalism ultimately consumes everything, including those character forming institutions, um, which have become highly performative in recent years. And there may be some truth to it, but I don't think that there's still an alternative to liberalism. I think liberalism affords us also the possibility of getting back on track and saying, okay, we've lost our way here. Let's, let's ask ourselves what role our institutions can play in creating a more compassionate society. But the answer is not to just assert some arbitrary authority that tells everybody what they must think. That's not going to work. That's not 
that's um, ultimately it's just going to sho shove us back into our own corners and going to further tear society apart. So we've got some problems in this society. I don't think liberalism was the main cause of those, but um, but but rather, you know, changes in the structure of our economy, changes in the structure of how we talk to each other or social media and the like, changes to how our political system works, gerrymandering and the like, those all drove people apart. And I think it's harder to maintain cohesive institutions in such a polarized environment. But, um, but you know, liberalism is not the answer to everything. But so, so then let's have the discourse on what it means to be a good citizen. That's an important thing to do. Look, I know you got to get going relatively soon, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. But if you want to talk about, you know, if you want to say like last message, like what you hope your book will do, and you know, sure give people a different way of looking at something uh please go ahead yeah so number one i hope my book gets more jews to understand that this ideology which many of them have embraced at least in a soft form is having ill effects and that it's going to hurt us and that they should take another look that's number one number two i wanted so that people who already agree that there's a problem but have been silent about it get the courage of their convictions to push back in their own way um, because it's not going to change until moderates and liberals who care deeply about the nature of our discourse assert themselves here and stop worrying about being judged or losing a job. We're going to have to have more courage out there. We're going to have to scale courage in society. And thirdly, I think it's an opportunity to fashion new coalitions between Jews and other groups, Jews and Asians, Jews and heterodox black thinkers, Jews and heterodox Muslim thinkers. In fact, I will tell you, we just were part of a uh, of a two-day conference with Jews and liberal Muslims who were uh, were arguing for the Abraham Accords and um, and fighting back against extremism from the left and the right. So, you know, I want those coalitions to come into being and um, at scale because I think that the Jewish community spent a, a lot of the past 70 years in a progressive coalition that made sense for it at the time. But, but now with this ideological environment, it's not the, it's no longer a safe Harbor. It's no longer a home for us. And we need to start branching out and building new connections. And I hope this book will help contribute to that. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. And thanks again for coming on. If you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you and I'll put links to, uh, like I'll put links to where people can get your book if you have something yeah. to send along to me. Yeah. So right now they can get it at they can they can sign up for it at JILV backslash book, jilv.org backslash book. And in October 18th, it'll be on Amazon. Awesome. Again, thank you very much, David, for coming on. Thanks a million. Great. And thanks everyone for listening.